Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies. I'm Julia Stettel, your host, and today we'll be talking to Margarete Fuchs about her new book, Der Bewegende Blick, or in English, Gaze and Eye Contact Within Modern German Literature. Ms. Fuchs currently holds a postdoc position at the Philips University of Marburg, one of the oldest universities in Germany. Uh, her books deals not o- book deals not only with seeing as a form of perception, but also with the act of looking at somebody. Miss Fox, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Ah, yes, yeah, so glad to have you here. Um, uh, okay, now as a starting point, I would be curious why you are interested in interested in gaze and eye contact within literature. Um, I mean, why are these things so important for modernist texts in Germany? Well, right, this doesn't seem to be obvious at first sight. But one has to keep in mind that at the turn of the last century, many optical devices were developed, for example, such as panoramas, early film cameras, the advancement of photography, the first cinemas, etc. These devices were an integral part of mass culture and thus also of literature. They were essential to the process of the modernization. Those developments were also a reaction to increasing acceleration and concentration of stimuli, which at the turn of the century challenged, or rather overburdened, the cognitive processes, primarily of the urban population on many different levels. So um, you mean the status of gaze is linked with deep changes somehow within um, society, right? So that something just has changed? Yeah, I, I think that's right, exactly. This changes within society in a way flooded a modern human being. First and foremost, the modern human being was, an, was a spectator and then, if at all, an agent. This led to a great variety of problems, such as experiencing urbanization and medialization or masses and anonymity. And most importantly, another issue is the experience that even language becomes equivocal. These modern experiences present people with the question of how to interact and communicate with others. How should one get in contact with someone if that person or oneself is in danger of disappearing in the crowd? Or, for example, and how should one engage in communication with others if language itself is problematic? And I think at this moment, the phenomenon of the gaze comes into play. This phenomenon seems to be the answer of, uh, to everything. The gaze should on the one hand express the inner self. One tended to believe that with the gaze some form of individuality became visible with oneself. And on the other hand, the gaze offers the option of establishing contact. In short, the gaze apparently promises the salvation of the individual, of language, of intersubjectivity, of communication. Um, and yet at the same time, the limits of these hopes and the threat of the gaze become visible. The anonymity of the masses refuses individual gazes, 
the technical gaze of a photo or film camera seem cold and inhuman. And in line with Foucault, <laughs> the anonymous and invisible gazes of power permeate the institution and organizations in legislation and administration and in political systems. Accordingly, public and private everyday life are increasingly being controlled. Now, um, uh, within your book, you analyze uh, texts from uh, different German authors. And um, I would just uh, suggest just to start with the first one, um, which is to say uh, Heinrich uh, Mann uh, and his story uh, Pippo Spano. Um, honestly, I didn't know it before reading your book. Uh, so could you briefly tell our listeners what it is all about, this uh, Pippo Spano? Yeah, of course. Well, um, Pippo Spano is a short novella by Heinrich Mann, uh, which was published in 1904. The main character is the writer Malvolto. He apparently suffers writer's block of epic proportions. And his role model to help him through the crisis is the condottiere and conqueror of the Turks, Pippo Spano, who lived in the Renaissance. Uh, Renaissance. His portrait, which hangs in Malvolto's house, seems to embody in Malvolto's eyes the drive and the willpower he himself is missing in order to trans transform art into life. Malvolto then begins an affair with, with Gemma, one of his admirers. Sorry. Malvolto hopes that this affair will help him to uh, again grasp life and to be able to write again or to be strong again. But this attempt fails. Even the murder of Gemma, which Malvolto commits at the end of the novella, actually this was supposed to be a double suicide, does not make him strong hero of life, but a stick comedian. Within your analysis of Pippo Spano, uh, you pay a particular attention to the relationship between uh, spectators and, on the other hand, um, the concept of art in general. So please tell me more about that. Yeah, well, at the beginning of the story, the poet Malvolto stands on the theater stage behind the still-closed curtain and peeks into the audience through a gap in the curtain. The audience, especially Gemma, look at the curtain in anticipation of the performance. Malvolto, behind the curtain, yearns to get out of his artificial world and into reality. reality. This is his main theme, to transform art into life, to step from this very theatralic, uh, theatrical and artificial world into life. This change of perspective should have allowed a first contact between the stage and the audience. It fails because the, the audience, especially Gemma, cannot see and return Malvolto's gaze. There is no mutual recognition. And that is exactly the theatrical basic situation that runs through the entire narrative. The failing gazes or glances between the realm of art and reality, not only between the stage and the audience, because there are many different images in the stories that are being viewed and which apparently look back, but they all do not offer a way back into a reality beyond art. It is a self-contained art cosmos which only reflects itself. Eventually, a voyeuristic photograph of Malvolto and Gemma appears. This could have only been taken by a third person outside of the self-contained art and love cosmos. I mean, this photograph is the rep representation of the view from outside. 
this photo, this intrusion of reality by the gaze of a third party, leads Malvolto and Gemma to commit a double suicide, which, however, is not successful. Well, and also interesting is that through the photo, the reader is forced to take on the position of the voyeuristic third party. He or she becomes the destroyer of the artificial world Malvolto and Gemma are trapped in. I especially like it how you um, link the, the beginning of the story um, uh, with the later parts um, you uh, mentioned then in your book. Um, so, uh, right, um, uh, to go on to another text, you also deal with Hugo von Hofmannsthal's Elektra. Um, uh, but uh, before analyzing it, um, you claim that movement and standstill can happen at the same time. And uh, that's uh, pretty strange to hear, sorry. <laughs> you know? but, uh, <laughs> I mean, normally a thing either moves or doesn't move, um, but you say that this is not true and that these things might happen um, simultaneously. So um, you say that this has um, something to do uh, with viewing. Um, so how do you get this idea? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, um, admittedly, it might sound a bit crazy at first, I think so. No, however, no. This, <laughs> however, this notion goes back to, to attempts in the Renaissance to describe dance movements. In this pursuit, the actual pose is very important. The pose as such indicates a certain pause. It is a break in which the flow of the movements the blurriness become visible only because the movement is inter or disrupted. As a consequence, this essentially reflects movements. For the spectator of the dance movements, the eye centers at the pose. Um, it is a sort of invitation to look and to recognize the simultaneity of movement and standstill. It is the notion that movement only becomes visible because of pauses, because of a standstill. Uh, well, and these ideas were picked up and discussed around 1900, for example, in the expressive dance, which was extremely vogue then. Luke Hoffmannsthal was friends with, with Grete Wiesenthal, one of the greatest dancers of the time. And by the way, she had also incorporated the pose, i.e. the standstill as a central, central theme into her performance. However, the simultaneity of movement and standstill are also important in other discourses around 1900. All these discourses always deal with the, with the relationship between standstill, movement and the gaze of the spectator, as for example in physics and electrodynamics or in contemporary photography, which was concerned with, with capturing movements in pictures, such as, for instance, Edward Maybridge or Etienne-Jules Marais, and, of course, in Einstein's special relativity theory, which he postulated in 1905. Oh, Einstein is, well, um, interesting. Um, so, yeah, in the second step, uh, you, you then uh, go on and use this um, theory for interpret interpreting Hoffmannsthal's uh, lecture. Um, so now I'm quite curious to hear more about that. Yeah, indeed, I tried i have tried to elaborate the simultaneity of movement and standstill as the main structure of the play namely a basic structure with uh, which emanates from a gaze which is strangely not the gaze of the spectator but the gaze of the dying fa father agamemnon in the play the murder scene of the father 
is not shown, but it, it is told three times in three different versions. The view of the narrative is always on the breaking gaze of the father. It is located between life and death, between absolute movement and absolute standstill. This breaking view or breaking gaze, I have to say, <laughs> drives all the characters in the play. Electra, in her boundless restlessness and her simultaneous inability to take action, or Clytemnestra, who constantly wanders restlessly through the palace, or Chrysothemis, who obsessively tries to erase her memories. These are all movements that at the same time are at a standstill, not able to move, do not cause anything. At the same time, thus reflect and problematize um, that the play, according to Aristotle, is the repre representation of action. But this does not seem to work anymore around the turn of the century. And in the play, with the appearance of Orest, the play gains in movement. He appears and takes action. He kills Clytemnestra. And this sets everybody in motion. It starts with a rush, a melee on stage and behind the stage. But it, res it results in a double standstill, the death of Elektra and, uh, and, uh, yes, and the end of the play. It's a fascinating thing. You really uh, cover a lot of interesting examples um, uh, for the gaze and for viewing. But uh, just um, to cover another aspect, uh, your book of your book, you also could you also tell us a bit about um, Siegfried uh, Krakauer's assumption that looking at somebody uh, might be a tool for gaining power about people. Um, I mean, um, uh, this somehow reminds me of school, um, this gaining power, because um, teachers often look at people with the fierce look and then suddenly these people start behaving. <laughs> so, uh, can you explain that a bit? <laughs> yeah, there are certainly some parallels, I think. So. Um, there is a very interesting experiment. A couple of years ago, a behavioral scientist hung photocopied pictures of human eyes on the cupboard in a coffee kitchen of her institute. She hung them at eye level next to the sign that asked the visitors for a donation for the coffee. After a week, she replaced the eyes with a picture of flowers. The week after that, she um, pasted another picture of eyes and so on. And the result was spectacular. In the weeks, the picture of the eyes hung in the coffee kitchen. People paid seven times more the money for coffee than in the weeks when the flower picture was on. Oh, frightening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in, in Discipline and Punish, however, Foucault had already analyzed the structure and the power of the gaze on the basis of Bentham's panopticum, especially the power of the detracted but omniscient gaze. It is enough to know that you might be observed to change your behavior. Uh, suffice it to know that one may be observed and one behaves differently. The knowledge of the gaze thus has an effect on our actions, our behavior, even our bodies. Well, but to get back to, Gra to Krakauer, he asks the question of how to escape the cold technical gaze of the spectator. A gaze that for him is the embodiment of rationalized modernity. He develops the concept that only through mimicry is one able to detract oneself from this gaze. 
This means that you ostensibly adapt, adapt to your environment and thus to the spectator's gaze, and thereby one precisely becomes invisible. Um, similar to camouflage, which originated in the animal kingdom, yet due to its use in World War I, it received a lot of attention in artistic and scientific circles. According to Krakauer, this adaption, uh, adaptation should thus serve to permeate the rationalized reality with uncontrolled nature, something um, yeah, irrational. Therefore, mimicry is very subversive. It means that you subject yourself to the gaze, uh, to the gaze of power, and at the same time detract yourself from it. For Krakauer, mimicry is a redemption picture, which to him, by the way, has messianic qualities. I'm afraid uh, we cannot talk about all of uh, your topics here, um, but um, maybe one last question. Um, after looking at Krakauer's theoretical concept you just mentioned about um, gazing and power and so on, um, you observe that it also plays an important role within uh, Krakauer's literary texts. Um, could you explain uh, that a bit more? Yes, I will try. <laughs> in uh, Krakauer's novel Ginster, which in my view is really a very readable and funny novel, the protagonist Ginster has been drafted in order to participate in World War I. He should adapt his environment, should go along and function and should actually no longer be an individual. Ginster increasingly and um, casually refuses to do that. As an architect, he is interested in patterns and ornaments and he allows him himself to be absorbed by these structures and, in a sense, to be drawn into it. He adapts to the patterns and ornaments in his environment to the degree that he imagines himself transforming into a wall or into an ornament on a tapestry. He uses this over-adaption as a sort of invisibility cloak or magic cap against power, violence and conformity. The camouflage offers him a space in which he can exist. It enables him to escape the unbearable reality and to step into a more authentic real life. Miss folks, uh, that all sounds really exciting. Um, so uh, thank you so much for joining us today on the German uh, Studies channel and all the best. My pleasure and thank you too. Yes, thank you. <laughs>